Let's again look to, to God in prayer. Thank you, Lord God, for once again another opportunity to look into your word. We pray that your spirit would come upon us, that we would be sensitive and open to hear your voice speaking to us, how we might apply this to our lives. Through Christ, amen. Beasts and Books. Klaus Epp, a farmer preacher in Russia, led a group of Russian Mennonites to Central Asia to wait for the coming of Jesus. He was convinced that the end of the time was near. He was convinced that Jesus was coming at any time in 1880 and 1881. And he used this chapter that we will be looking at today uh, as a way of understanding and interpreting the end times. Epp wrote, and I quote, We exist in the time of the ten horns or in the time of the end. The three horns that will be conquered are France, Spain, and Italy, end of quote. Now, as he led this group of Russian Mennonites to Central Asia, they experienced significant hardships and depredations, including being forcibly removed from a place where they desired to settle. And I suggest that this is not a proper use of this particular scripture. And as I did last Sunday, I quote again from the Confession of Faith in a Mennonite perspective. Quote, to be cautious about too narrowly identifying persons, places, or events of the end times with particular people, places, and happenings of the present. End of quote. At this time, I will invite Dottie Weber to come forward to read the scripture from Daniel 7, Daniel 7, 1 to 18, and verses 23 to 28 in the Pew Bible, page 881 and 882, and it's also on the screen. Daniel 7, 1 to 18, and then 23 to 22, and in their Pew Bibles, 881. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions passed through his mind as he was lying on his bed. He wrote down the substance of his dream. Daniel said, in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me were the four winds of heaven churning up the great sea. Four great beasts, each different from the others, came up out of the sea. The first was like a lion, and it had the wings of an eagle. I watched until its wings were torn off, and it was lifted from the ground so that it stood on two feet like a man, and the heart of a man was given to it. And there before me was a second beast, which looked like a bear. It was raised up on one of its sides, and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. It was told, get up, 
and eat your, eat your fill of flesh. After that I looked, and there before me was another beast, one that looked like a leopard, and on its back it had four wings like those of a bird. This beast had four heads, and it was given authority to rule. After that, in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had large iron teeth. It crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all the former beasts, and it had ten horns. While I was thinking about the horns... There before me was another horn, a little one, which came up among them, and three of the first horns were uprooted before it. This horn had eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth that spoke boastfully. As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow... And the hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousands times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were opened. Then I continued to watch because of the boastful words the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. The other beasts had stopped, stripped of their authority, but were allowed to live for a period of time. In my vision at night, I looked and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. I, Daniel, was troubled in spirit. And the visions that passed through my mind disturbed me. I approached one of those standing there and asked him the true meaning of all this. So he told me and gave me the interpretation of these things. The four great beasts are four kingdoms that will rise from the earth. But the saints of the Most High will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever. Yes, forever and ever. He gave me this explanation. The fourth beast is a fourth kingdom that will appear on earth. It will be different from all the other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth, trampling it down and crushing it. The ten horns are ten kings who will come from this kingdom. After them, another king will arise, different from the earlier ones, He will subdue three kings. He will speak against the Most High and oppress his saints and try to change the set times and the laws. 
the saints will be handed over to him for a time, times and a half time. But the court will sit and his power will be taken away and completely destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty, power, and greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be handed over to the saints, the people of the Most High. His kingdom will be everlasting kingdom, and all the rulers will worship and obey him. This is the end of the matter. I, Daniel, was deeply troubled by my thoughts, and my face turned pale, but I kept the matter to myself. Thank you. Thank you very much, Dottie. And if you uh, care to, you may want to fill in the blanks or take some notes on the on the uh, sheet in your bulletin. And also, let me just mention that we've been having a series on the wild and wonderful visions. This is the last sermon uh, on this series. And then in several weeks from today, we'll start a new series on the parables of Jesus. But certainly this is, as you have heard described, a wild and a wonderful vision that Daniel had that he was terrified. He he explains that he was terrified and his face turned pale as, he, as a result of this vision. I want to begin by sharing some introductory comments about Daniel. First of all, Daniel was a common name among the Israelites. Therefore, there are other Daniels mentioned in the scripture, not just this Daniel who was carried away to Babylon. The name Daniel means God has judged. God has judged. And he was one of a group of Israelites carried away by Nebuchadnezzar, deported by Nebuchadnezzar to the land of Babylon, probably in 597 B.C. And he ends up being in the country of Babylon the empire of Babylon, a total of about 60 to 70 years. And Daniel, the book of Daniel now, is the only book of apocalyptic literature in the Old Testament. The other book of apocalyptic literature referring to the end times is the book of Revelation, which of course is in the New Testament. And in this apocalyptic literature... The number seven is the number for perfection, for completeness, whereas the number six is the number for evil. And therefore, the mark of the beast, 666, is a symbolic of triple evil. Now, the structure of the book of Daniel is easy to comprehend. The book of Daniel has six stories in the first six chapters and then shares four visions, four visions in the last part of the book of Daniel. It's interesting also to realize that this is the only vision that Daniel says he wrote it down. He, he wrote it down probably as a way of remembering, and, and it was so frightening and terrifying for him. This book is unique in that part of the book 
in part of the book in Daniel 2, the last part of verse, Daniel chapter 2, the last part of verse 4, all the way through the end of chapter 7 is written in Aramaic. The Old Testament basically is written in Hebrew, but here we have this one section written in Aramaic, which is or was the language of international commerce and culture, similar to the way English is in our world today. So this section of the book, written in Aramaic, 24b to 728, is known as the tract, the tract to the nations, T-R-A-C-T, an edict or a word to the nations. And it begins with the story of the kingdom of God in chapter 2, where Nebuchadnezzar has this dream about, about four kingdoms and four different metals. But these kingdoms give way to the kingdom of God that will be set up and the kingdom of God that will cover all the earth. In Daniel 2.35. Now, the last chapter of this tract to the nations is in chapter 7, which we will look at today. And the four beasts then are parallel. The four beasts in this chapter are parallel to the four kingdoms that are discussed in chapter 2, or the four metals of chapter 2. As Paul Lederach points out, chapter 7, therefore, serves a dual purpose. It completes the tract to the nations. It also introduces Daniel's visions about the trials and the tribulations that will come upon the people many years later. Daniel was obviously concerned about the difficulties and the sufferings that would come upon the people of God many years hence. And God was showing him what would happen to God's people. And he had a vision at night where the sea was churned. The sea was churned by the winds of heaven. Daniel 7 to 3. I, Daniel, saw in my vision by night the four winds of heaven stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. And this great sea may be a symbol of the godlessness of this world. And these beasts come up out of the godlessness of the sea by the four winds that are churning churning in the sea in turmoil. And in the scriptures, many times the sea, uh, even going back to the time of creation, many times the sea is a symbolic of the chaos uh, that is happening. It also may be a symbol of the restlessness of the nations and the political ambitions of the rulers and the leaders of the nations. And so the winds of heaven indicate that nothing, nothing, not even the machinations and the jockeying of the nations for power and position is outside the control and the omnipotence of God. Nothing is outside the control 
and omnipotence of God. That all of it is under God's design, is under God's reign. And in his vision, Daniel sees four strange and unique beasts coming up and arising out of the sea, and he describes them. And many Bible scholars agree that these beasts represent the following empires. The Babylonian, the Medo-Persian, the Persian, and the Roman. Now, someone has shared a picture of the beasts, and I want to uh, have that picture in front of you as I describe, as I describe the beasts and what they may symbolize. The first beast that Daniel talks about is the lion, a lion with eagle's wings. And while Daniel watched the, the wings of the lion, you can see there on the front, uh, while Daniel was watching, the wings of the lion were plucked off. And Bible scholars agree that this lion is a symbol of the Babylonian empire where Daniel was located. So Daniel was experiencing this vision uh, from his own vantage point from this particular time, the lion with the eagle's wings, and while he watched, the wings were plucked off. And that was a symbol of the Babylonian empire with Nebuchadnezzar as its leader. The second beast looked like a bear with three tusks in his mouth, and you can see the, see the bear, uh, the bear-like creature. And the bear beast was told, arise, devour many bodies. And the bear probably represents the Medo-Persian empire. Paul Lederach points out the command to devour points to the expansion of the empire. And that empire included territories now found in Egypt, Israel, Jordan, Syria, Turkey, Russia, Iraq, Pakistan, and Afghanistan, end of quote. Now the third beast that came out of the sea as the winds of heaven were churning this great sea was like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back and also four heads, um, like the, the leopard. And it probably represents the Persian Empire, which expanded in four or all the directions. That's why it has four heads and four wings. The fourth beast, you see it in the back, the dragon-like creature coming up out of the sea, the most hideous and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had ten horns on its head, and while Daniel was observing the horns, another horn came up among the horns, and three of the horns were plucked out to make room for the little horn. And this fourth beast likely stands for the Greeks. Lederach says, quote, An ordinary beast has two horns. This one has ten horns. In other words, its ability to attack, to gore, to kill, and destroy is five times greater than anything known previously. End of quote. Now, there are some scholars who suggest that this fourth beast is the Roman Empire. And when the Roman Empire was abandoned, was uh, torn asunder, 
it then was divided into ten parts. That this beast is the Roman Empire. That's what some scholars would agree. Others would say that this last beast is symbolic of the Antichrist. That we should not name a particular empire at this point, but need to wait until right before the coming of Christ. And since verse 13 depicts the Son of Man coming, or in other words, Jesus coming in the clouds, that this fourth beast represents the Antichrist that will come in the last days. Yet, as our songs indicated in their praise time this morning, we want to emphasize, or I want to emphasize, that God is present in the midst of trouble, that God is present in the midst of suffering and tribulation, that God is present in troubled times, that God is with us and does not allow the beasts of the sea to have ultimate and final control, that God is still the one who plucks off the wings, who brings down the empires, that God is still the one in control. Certainly, I do not need to remind you that in our time, you're listening to the news and watching the news, the international news, I do not need to remind you that the nations are in turmoil, that war is being waged, encroachments upon other nations, and the leaders have ideas of how to gain power and control. The Guardian News reported on Wednesday of this past week that, quote, the death toll from conflict in eastern Ukraine has doubled in the last two weeks. That was, they were quoting from the United Nations Human Relations, Human Rights Office. And there's international wrangling was continuing over a Russian aid convoy that was coming toward the Ukraine. And the Human Rights Office said, quote, it's very conservative estimates to suggest that the death toll has risen to 2,086 by the beginning of this week, up from 1,129 on July 26. Now, would you like to hazard a guess in your mind? I won't ask you to shout them out, but would you like to hazard a guess as to how many people were injured in this Russian-Ukrainian conflict so far? About five thousand people have been injured. The figures that it said, quote, represent a clear escalating trend of violence in the East, end quote. You're also aware, and let me remind you, that just last month, a Malaysian Airlines jetliner was shot down with 298 persons aboard, including some 80 children blown out of the sky, apparently by a Russian-made missile. And the U.S. intelligence indicated that Russian allies were behind the attack. A recent issue of Time magazine has shown some gruesome pictures of that Russian, of that um, Malaysian airline jet. 
With the assistance of Egypt, the war between Hamas and Gaza, or between Gaza and Israel, has been temporarily suspended, and a ceasefire is, is due to expire soon. Joe Klein comments, quote, Israel remains intransient on a West Bank agreement. Peace is a fantasy. Only the dead bodies are real, end of quote. Way back in the Great War, 1914 to 1918, in the Great War, in the First World War, Woodrow Wilson believed that that war would end all wars. Obviously, obviously he was very, very wrong. The conflicts and turmoils, the conflicts and difficulties that we're seeing in the Middle East today, in Israel, Iran, Ukraine, Syria, Afghanistan, many of that stems back to the results of World War I, the Great War, and the creation of new nation states that followed that war. This chapter assures us, Daniel 7 assures us that God is present in the midst of the difficulties, in the midst of struggles, that God is present in the difficulties in the midst of the nations when nations struggle. We do not need to despair, my sisters and brothers, because God walks with us in the midst of the darkness, in the midst of the turmoil and the violence around us in our world today. And after seeing the beasts of the sea, after seeing the beasts, then Daniel's gaze Daniel's gaze is turned toward heaven. And in contrast to the turmoil and the unrest, and in contrast to the churning of the sea, where the beasts come out of the sea, representing the godlessness of this world, heaven is presented then as a place of calm, as a place of serenity with God, as the ancient one, that's how Daniel refers to God here in this passage. As the ancient one comes and is in control and takes his seat among the court. In verses 9 and 10. I watched as thrones were put in place and the ancient one sat down to judge. His clothing was as white as snow, his hair like purest wool. He sat on a fiery throne with wheels of blazing fire and a river of fire was pouring out, flowing from his presence. Millions of angels ministered to him. Many millions stood to attend him. And then the court began its session and the books were opened. Another commentator, Sinclair Ferguson, says, quote, in the face of the terrible havoc that people are able to cause. Daniel is reminded that ultimate authority does not reside in Babylon, Greece, or Rome. It is in the hands of God. End of quote. In other words, the ultimate authority does not reside in Washington, D.C., in Moscow, Beijing, or Seoul. 
in the midst of the struggles, in the midst of the restlessness and the beasts arising out of the sea and the turmoil among the nations and the conflicts in the world, we are called to practice the admonition of Isaiah. When Isaiah says in Isaiah 26, 3 and 4, you will keep him in perfect peace, all who trust in you, all whose thoughts are fixed on you. Trust in the Lord always, for the Lord God is the eternal rock. It's interesting to note, isn't it, that the throne of God, back in one of the other visions that Ezekiel had, he saw the throne of God on wheels. Here Daniel sees a similar throne, which is on wheels. But these wheels are made of fire, and fire goes out from the presence of God. The writer to the Hebrews, quoting from Psalm 104, says in Hebrews 1.17, regarding the angels, he says, he sends his angels like winds, his servants like flames of fire. Those who continue to persist in evil will face the consequences as described in Hebrews 10.27. There is only the terrible expectation of God's judgment and the raging fire that will consume his enemies. Notice also, and some translations say thousands, others say millions, but there are millions of angels, thousands and millions, a large number, attending God on the throne as God is seated there in judgment. Daniel, Daniel, the one whom we learned was willing to to stand alone. We learned that back in, in Sunday school in the song, Dare to Be a Daniel, Dare to Stand Alone. Daniel would probably thought that he was the only one uh, in confronting the powers of Babylon, and yet here he has this vision of God, God being attended by millions and millions of, of angels. He is not alone. He is not alone. God is observant, and God is with him. There was a multitude in heaven supporting him and worshiping God that Daniel sees in this wild and wonderful vision. The hideous, strong, and powerful beast is put to death. God will have the ultimate victory over evil. Evil people and evil leaders are powerful and strong, but God has the last word. Notice also that heaven keeps records and the books were opened. Paul Lederach says, the faithful ones gain hope and strength from their trust that heaven keeps accurate books with no auditor needed, end of quote. And then Daniel, in his vision, sees someone like the Son of God, someone like the Son of Man, coming in the clouds, coming in the clouds. Jesus referred to himself repeatedly when he was here on this earth. Jesus referred to himself as the Son of Man. And he is the one who has all authority. These other kingdoms do not have ultimate and complete authority and dominion. Jesus says in Matthew 28, 18, Jesus came and told his disciples, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. 
The kingdoms of this world, the leaders of this world, do not have all authority. His kingdom will be over all peoples and over all languages, over all nations, and all will serve him. And then, Daniel says in verses 13 and 14, as my vision continued that night, I saw someone like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient one and was led into his presence. He was given authority, honor, and sovereignty over all the nations of the world so that people of every race and nation and language would obey him. His rule is eternal. It will never end. His kingdom will never be destroyed. What an amazing vision of Christ as ruler, of Jesus as the one whose kingdom, uh, hearing what will happen as the gospel goes all over the world, where believers from every nation will be governed by Jesus Christ, where it's an everlasting kingdom, the dominion by Jesus Christ. What are the implications? How can we use this vision that Daniel had in our lives and for our day? And I expect this has some implications for us as to how we live our lives. I'd like to push out three implications. The first, we must be aware of the reality of evil. Aware of the reality of evil and its pervasive influence in our world and our lives. Walter Wink wrote so eloquently in a trilogy of books back in the 1980s that there are demonic forces, he says, quote, that determine human existence, end quote. I also recall that when Pastor Jeff preached on on chapter 10, that he mentioned the fact that there are unseen forces behind the present reality, unseen forces in the background that we need to be aware of that evil is present. Not to be afraid of evil, but to be aware of the pervasive reality of evil. And while in an attempt to avoid personal responsibility, we might claim that the devil made me do it and blame it on the devil. But we dare, so we dare not blame the problems in our lives and circumstances on the devil. And yet, on the other hand, we must recognize, my sisters and brothers, that we do face a personal enemy, that, we, that Satan is real, but Jesus is greater than the enemy. We, on that, uh, we need to recognize both. We need to recognize that we face the enemy who will try to defeat us in our Christian lives. Implication number two. We must recognize, as I pointed out last week, we must recognize that the kingdom of God includes suffering. Quoting commentator Ferguson, the forces of hell will not prevail against it, but they will do all in their limited power to overwhelm the saints. Suffering of one kind or another is integral to being a Christian, end quote.
when we lived in Kansas, we had the opportunity to learn to know uh, Justina Newfeld and her husband Floyd. And Justina Newfeld uh, grew up as the youngest of 10 children. And while she was growing up, she lived a peaceful and secure life in the Ukraine, in a Mennonite community there in Ukraine. Paul Taves, commenting on Justina's book, writes, quote, the security and peace was threatened by the political changes in the Soviet Union in the 1930s. Justina and her family were forced to flee the Soviet and German armies along with her family and community. And as a result, as a direct result of the war, her father was imprisoned. And her brother Peter and his wife and their young son fled west with the retreating German army, fled to Poland. And Peter was naturalized then as a German citizen and drafted into the German army. Four months before the end of the war, his wife of five years received her last letter from her husband in Poland. And in the letter, he apologized for writing such a sad letter. Peter did not return from the war. And when they fled west, her brother Franz, at age 19, was also conscripted into the German army. He, too, never returned after the war. Attempts to find these family members have been, uh, over these years, have been of no avail. Justina was rescued then by Mennonite Central Committee worker Peter Dick and was brought to safely in Holland. She immigrated to the U.S. in 1947. In, in her book, A Family Torn Apart, Justina, with great pathos, describes the pain that she has been through. She has known intense suffering, but has been able, as a nurse who is now retired, a nurse to use her suffering experiences to minister to other people. Suffering is part of the reality of Christian life. The third implication. Our hope is not found in the political powers and the political parties of this world. Our hope is not found in the political powers. Our hope is not found in the beasts that arise out of the sea. Our resources for change and our resources for good are found in the kingdom of God through the resources of prayer and dependence on God. The worldly kingdoms have power, but their power is circumscribed, is limited by God. Again, quoting Ferguson, our aim is not to build the kingdoms of this world, but to share in the triumphs of Christ, end of quote. Klaus Epp, the preacher from Russia, was too certain about the meaning of these beasts. He and other leaders with him led this group of people to much hardship as they followed their vision and their interpretation of this vision from Daniel. 
Daniel records that he kept the vision turning over and over in his mind. He was concerned, Daniel was concerned about the turmoil. Daniel was concerned about the suffering that he saw as these beasts were coming out of the sea. Yet, we are assured, we are assured, my sisters and brothers, that the Ancient of Days is in control and that God, as the Ancient of Days, is present with us in times of suffering and difficulty. Amen. We'll share in a closing song. <laughs>